Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 129 unread books on my shelf. With me is my brother, Andrew. 129, sure. And my husband, Dylan's the sound recordist. More like 159. Okay, okay. You guys are spoiling my first segment, which is my shame. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't spoil it if you've posted on Instagram stacks of book. That's true. Stacks of book. Ruin surprise. (laughs) You're right. Okay, so... It has to be said, yes, I managed to get down to 129, which is only four more than I started the podcast with three years ago. Progress. <laughs> yeah, I still have some of those bookmarks that say Bailey has 125 as though that's some sort of egregious number. I know. Guess what? It's bad. But then it became Christmas. And some people like to mess with me. Some people being my brother. Uh, mess with you? You mean give you loving gifts? Yeah. So Andrew gave me, I think it was like, you gave me like 12 books. <laughs> No, I gave you nine nine books. Gave you nine books. Dylan gave me two. Even though I was supposed to give you one. You did trick me. So we, listeners may know, pages may know that we do Icelandic book flood, which apparently is not a real thing. And that makes me very sad. Yeah, we found a Reddit post that from an actual Icelander who was trying to figure out why a lot of Americans are doing book flood now, because for them, it's like Black Friday. Yeah, it's like, like we celebrated Black Friday by watching our new TV. So anyway, so what we learned and what we decided to believe is the truth is that on Christmas Eve, um, <laughs> Icelanders celebrate the book flood, um, which is where people buy each other books and you go to bed reading your new book and eating chocolate. If you just want an excuse to read books and eat chocolate, we don't have to drag the Icelandic people into this. You're into it. Don't even lie. So anyway, um, for Book Flood, Dylan and I got books for each other and I kind of picked out the one I wanted him to get for me. And then he went rogue and did a second book. And so it was hard because he was like, do you want this book that you know what it is or do you want this other one? You have to choose and you don't even know what the other one is. I mean, listeners may guess that I chose the one I already knew what it was. (laughs) Although, as you know, Billy loves games of extreme chance. Yeah. So anyway, that is to say I got a lot of books on Christmas. And then my employees, my co-workers got me a huge gift card to Chevalier's Bookstore, which is my local bookstore. And then I got many more books from them. So should I just say the titles? Should I just get it over with? Yeah. Uh, give me, if This is a good time if you're you know listening to the podcast and you're not driving, go make a snack, chill out for a little <laughs> bit, put the coffee on. This is going to take a minute. Okay. Well, basically I added 15 more books. So what's 129 plus 15? We're at 144. Yeah. Oh, that burns. <sighs> okay. It's under 150. It's true. So I got, <clears throat> here we go. Saying them fast. Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. The Bells. Ooh by Daniel Clayton. The Last True Poets of the Sea, Wilding Hall. Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. That's the one Dylan got me. My Heart is a Chainsaw, Survive the Night, The Reading List, Matrix, The Last House on Needless Street, My Body, Death of Jane Lawrence, The Turnout, Black Buck, and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Um, all right, so that we're 144. I also want to put it out there. I did pre-order two books. What? Well, I ordered um, the new Hanya Yanagihara book to Paradise. You guys know Hanya's my girl. I got it. I got to order it. Um, and that comes out next week. And then I wanted to get the new Patricia Lockwood book. Well, it's not new. It came out last year called um, No One Is Talking About This because I read Priest Daddy over the holiday and really liked it. And this is like her fiction. I think it was up for the National Book Award and stuff. Anyway, those two I've bought already and I'm just waiting for them to arrive at the bookstore. Wait, uh, I haven't heard about her new book. No one's talking about it. Ah. Um, anyway, so I just want to put it out there. I'm not going to get any more shame until my birthday. I have enough books and I also have 25 puzzles I haven't done. Oh, God. 
So I'm done. I'm not buying any more. Not until my birthday in July. Hey, Bailey, I think I speak for everybody in, I guess, the world um, when I say, <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, sad. You guys have no faith in me, and I don't have any faith in me either. Andrew, did you get any shame over Christmas? Uh, nothing that I'm adding to the list. In fact, I knocked two off. <laughs> <laughs> Rude. Uh, no, I mean, my book, Flood Book, was a lovely uh, graphic novel uh, called Basquiat. It was three stars. It wasn't, the art was really cool, but the story was pretty lacking. But did it help you achieve your uh, Goodreads goal? Mm. It did. It did. We can maybe talk about our Goodreads goals in a, in a minute, as this is our first podcast of the new year. Mm-hmm. I also knocked off Shiver and We Ride Upon Sticks from my current to-read list. So I'm sitting pretty. So you you hit your number of, on Goodreads. What was the number? My number was 30 and I hit 31 books. Nice. Well, my number was 75 and I got 77. Oh, well, that's cool. I made a goal that was reasonable for me <laughs> and and achieved it. Did this experience of trying to go for so many books, well, actually, let's talk about it. Are you are you going to, to retract your number of books, expand? Where are you going next after 75? 75 was difficult for me. I had some shorter books in there and I don't know if I would have made it otherwise. So I'm going to do 75 again because it's challenging. Also considering the book that I'm currently reading, which is like five books in one, if you don't remember, Les Mis- Rob by Victor Hugo. <laughs> yeah, that's a big boy. Um, so it, I think it's reasonable that you're not trying to add more to it. I was more wondering if you had like felt like it was too difficult to try again, but it seems like you're going for it, which is good. Yeah, I'm not a coward. What about you? Oh, well, I'm not a coward either. Um, <laughs> I am expanding the amount of books I'm planning to read. I'm going for 36, uh, which is, you know, equivalent of three books a month. I feel like it's pretty reasonable because I at least read one a month for this podcast. And then I'm trying to um, I love I love podcasts. I love watching things on TV. I'm trying to use a little bit of that time that I've spent listening and um, watching things and transferring it to reading time this year. That's just a little thing I'm working on. So hopefully I can read six more books or five more books this year. I should read more books instead of listen to podcasts, except for this one. This podcast is about books, so it's basically reading a book. If you listen to this podcast, you can count this towards your Goodreads goal. Yeah. If you listen to every episode five times. Uh, Bailey, yeah. speaking of your reading goal and the uh, little pit you've dug for yourself, have you have you started Les Mis? How's that going? I know you have, what, two weeks before it's due? Look down, look down. I'm reading this big book. Okay, uh, oh, Les Mis update. Dylan, do a, do a song for Les Mis update. Okay, the Les Mis update is I've figured out that I had five weeks to read the book, and the book is conveniently in five parts <gasps> that are all about 200 to 300 pages. So the thought was, I'll just read one section every week. Um, and I'm three weeks in, right? And I've read one section. So, <laughs> so you're, uh, let me just do the quick math here. You're two sections behind? Yeah, I'm like 600 pages behind. <laughs> look down, look down. <laughs> It's, You're it's... falling so behind. <laughs> well, Billy, are you saying that I should give you three more days to read it? Three days is all I need. Um, Here's the thing. No, I'm not going to spoil my review. Basically, what's happening is that I keep reading it at the end of the day when I'm in bed and I keep falling asleep. That's on you. I think it's on you, Valjean. So that's my update, Dylan. Take us out with the song. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, the tunes. Nice. <laughs> One last update for you, Pejos. My Christmas present from Dylan and his family was a big surprise. They turned our garage into a podcast recording studio. Do, 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 do. That's, a, that's just me. It's, it's just soundproofed. It's not. We don't have like a 
do 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 button. That would be cool. That was very convincing. So we're recording from it now and it's really exciting. They found these soundproof curtains. So we've like curtained off a section of it. There's a little cute on air sign and it's very awesome. So thank you, Dylan. And I hope it sounds good. I bet it does. The on air sign is critical for uh, insulation. Very important for morale. Just so you know, uh, Pedro's before we came on air, uh, apparently Bailey insisted on turning it on, even though you guys can't hear the on air signs is being on. It That is correct. Dylan didn't turn it on. And I was like, you better turn that on. We need that. <laughs> Help people know that we're on air. Um, Andrew, I heard that I'm kind of nervous about this. I heard that you read a book this week that Dylan also has interest in, but Dylan knows that it's not his review. Right, Dylan? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, Andrew, what book did you read this week? I read Band of Brothers. Uh, there's a subtitle that I'll get into later uh, by Stephen E. Ambrose. Bro, bro, we're bros and we're in a band. We're an American band. <laughs> Took me a second. It's about it's about the band Oasis. It's about the two <laughs> brothers. Um, Liam and Noel. Um, no, it's not about that at all. It's about World War II. So here's a little uh, introduction. I do know that Dylan has a lot of love, uh, a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm about this book. So I actually wrote less of a review than I normally would because I figured why not let Dylan go off a little bit. So you, there will be time for you, Dylan. Let me just lay down some uh, covering fire for a second and then you can jump in. Dylan, you're in the reserve. Is that a, that's an army term? Yeah, it is. Um, all right. So uh, in Band of Brothers, subtitle, E Company, 506th Regiment, 101st Airborne, from Normandy to Hitler's Eagle's Nest, Stephen E. Ambrose chronicles the journey from raw recruits to grizzled veterans of E Company, 506th Regiment, 101st Airborne, from Normandy to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. <laughs> Crafted out of interviews with the men involved, Ambrose assembles a compelling and absorbing chronicle of ordinary men pushed to the extreme. And that's my little intro. Slash summary. The subtitle does it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, that's why I made the joke in my summary. It was good. I got it. I got it. So, I mean, the book is is what it sounds like. It's um, constructed from interviews and some research by the author, and it, it goes from basic training um, of this elite uh, paratrooping unit um, who whose first uh, combat mission was on D-Day. They, they jumped behind the lines at Utah Beach and tried to secure um, travel for people coming off of Utah Beach to the very end of the war in Europe, specifically, um, where they ended up being at um, Hitler's Eagle's Nest, which was a which was a complex in the mountains in Austria. Um, so they were really involved in that. They uh, throughout the way they fought in Holland. They were at the Battle of the Bulge, and so they really got a unique and very very frontline experience uh, um, for people who started as regular citizens. It's funny because it almost seems like a movie where like. Why is the main character in every single one of these battles? And they kind of address that as well, where it's like they're just keep plugging them away because they're so good. So this this group just happened to be at a lot of the a lot of the things. Yep. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there was tons of other battles, but they they were they did really well on their first mission. They were really well received exiting the like training program. They were like the best coming out of it. They like put others to, others to shame at one point. They like have to transfer and go through basic training again, and they are like running backwards while everybody else who's supposed to be training them is running forwards. Mm -hmm. So they were very much like crack troops. And yeah, and like Dylan said, they kept doing well, so they kept getting rewarded question mark <laughs> by getting sent to like where they needed the best people and. They, they actually uh, addresses that and, and talks about how that 
affected them psychologically the way they were like, we're doing a good job. Why aren't we getting rewarded? We're just getting put into more danger. It's like when you're the best employee and then you're rewarded with more work. Yeah. So that's why you want to just be middle of the pack. <laughs> <laughs> Except you get shot more. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more um, shooting at you in this. So th- there's not a whole lot I can tell you about like the plot of this book because, I mean, it is nonfiction. It is the story of a, a regiment in World War II. And you guys hopefully know how World War II ended up. So um, that's the story. Uh, what makes this book unique and what makes it cool is that uh, Ambrose as I, I said in my intro, construct this out of interviewing the surviving members of, of E Company, which he also refers to as Easy Company. That's their nickname. And he has a lot of love for his characters, his his interview subjects. He has a lot of awe for what they achieved, sometimes to the detriment maybe of writing the book. Um, and he, he lays it out straight. Um, so here are some of my elves, my pros, my positives about this book. Um, it's incredibly readable. It goes very quick. The chapters are, are digestible chunks. And it doesn't get so bogged down into military specifics, though it comes close a couple times, yeah. that you lose the thread of the people you're following. It does have those military specifics. And if you're a military history junkie of some sort, or like you really like learning about sort of the intricacies of troop movement, you'll get a taste of that. But I do think that Ambrose avoids going too far down that that you check out. And the chapters, I don't think anyone is longer than 20 pages. They're all between like 10 and, and 18 mostly. So it's easy to read a section, feel like you've gotten a section of the story and decide if you want to move on or not at the time, which which is good because sometimes in history books that I've read in the past, they just get so concerned with trying to tell you every detail about everything. You just feel like you can never get to the end of a chapter. Mm-hmm. Another another elf um, is that the window into the emotional experiences of the soldiers, in particular where it clashes with like Hollywood depictions of heroism is really interesting. Ambrose really lets the soldiers take the lead um, of the story and that ends up being effective. Like they do heroic things that you would see shown in films of like charging down machine gunners, like doing these night rescue movements, but the whole time they're not necessarily in love with the actions that they've done and they're definitely not in love with the army. And so you get sort of like a pretty unique view into um, the emotional state and the emotional havoc that caused and also a sense of what they were feeling as they were doing it. And it's not like, I'm going to go be a hero. It's more like, I just got to survive this or I'm saving somebody's butt for being an idiot, which I feel like is not the story that's usually told in the, in the you know, film versions of these stories. That's interesting because it's like, you know, for those of you who are, those people that are looking for like a gung-ho patriotic book like in some ways it is that because they were in such great battles and they did so well but in the other way you, like they're they are not gung-ho patriotic that's interesting yeah it's interesting and, and and they like own up to a lot of the mistakes the army makes in it they're they're critical of a lot of people that like they're like this general was an idiot mm-hmm. uh, and things like that which is which is pretty interesting i was gonna add on i think it's helpful too that he interviews pretty much everyone in easy company so it start it's like at the command with uh, lieutenant dick winters and we kind of see the commanders as well as like the foot soldiers. Mm-hmm. So when an order comes down, you can kind of see it from a bunch of different perspectives. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And he does he does spread the wealth in terms of who he's interviewing. He does. He definitely sticks with Dick Winters as a protagonist, but that makes sense because he was in a position of power from day one to day, what is it, like 1,095 of the existence of this company. Mm. He was one of the few people who was there the ent- whole time and during that time had some position of power. Is that Damian Lewis in the show? 
that's Damian Lewis's character gotcha. in the in the miniseries. Um, and he's I mean he's a really compelling he's a really compelling figure. Um, moving on to my orcs a bit. I'm not sure that Ambrose is always super fair in his criticism. Uh, maybe it's understandable he's like incredibly forgiving of certain actions that people took, and I can't help that that some of that is because he really just grew to love the men he was he was interviewing um, slash became sort of enamored with the story of Easy Company. And I guess it makes sense. Their story is amazing. They did crazy things, but like they're not they don't always do things perfect. They're not always good. They sometimes say kind of racist things. Um, and I just feel like Ambrose was like, but but these guys are the good guys. So just don't worry about that. We're, we'll, we'll criticize somebody else in the army for a while for doing basically <laughs> the same thing that we're that our, your protagonists are doing. But we're just going to focus on, on ours. There's literally one section when they're moving through Germany that they said like, well, yeah, they looted and they stole a lot of stuff and they did terrible things. But but the Russians and like he goes out of his way. He keeps saying, but the Russians were a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, he literally says one can only imagine that this interaction with this young woman would have gone differently if the Russians were here. And like, it's just like, mm, Ambrose, do you need to? <laughs> um, and this is sort of my big orc, which is that I don't know how much Ambrose's framing and like prose added to the men's stories. Like, I kind of found myself feeling I just wanted it to be a collection of interviews, which is basically what it is. But with Ambrose like framing things weirdly sometimes, he's not a bad writer. It's just like there's no no spice on any of it. It's like often like listing the amount of rations that they had or like the equipment they were carrying. And so I just, uh, I found that I, w- I would be curious to read a version of this that's just like the interviews collected. And I think it would give me the same experience. I don't know. Interesting. Is Dylan so angry right now? No, he's just, I can tell he's just waiting for his, his no, no, time no. to be I, unleashed. No, I, that's actually my part of it too, where like the big thing with Stephen Ambrose, especially with this book, but also a lot of his books is he's a good researcher and mm-hmm. he's good at like compiling all the stuff together to make a narrative, but he is not a strong writer. Not a strong writer. Yeah, that that's what it is. It, like it's so well researched. It's so well like constructed, but it isn't like beautiful, if that makes sense. And I don't mean that in like, I want flowery language, but it's just like, he's like nailed together the like wood frame of this book and like, look at this, it's great, but it doesn't have any like depth in terms of like the, the funkiness of writing or anything, which is fine. It's, it's a chronicle of history. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. But does that mean that it works better as a miniseries, you think, than as a book? Having watched a few episodes in the miniseries, but not all of it, um, I think so. I think it might. It, I think it wants to be told visually. Like, honestly, it, it, they're able to dig into things a lot better with that. I don't know. Dylan, what do you think as someone who um, loves the miniseries more than some of his family members? Yes. <laughs> as someone that has watched the miniseries a bunch of times, the miniseries, I think. Well, for, first off, Andrew, how many stars do you give this? Uh, I gave it four stars because I felt like it wasn't enough that I just didn't think I like Ambrose did the work and the story is very compelling and I mean the things these these men did should be honored but I was giving it the four stars for that more than like the quality of prose yeah I think Andrew kind of nailed my personal feelings with the book, okay. like, perfectly. That I give the story five stars. Mm-hmm. Metavisi Company, five stars. Great guys. Um, <laughs> and the book is such a good example of finding a story and, like, digging out every detail of it. There's just problematic stuff that I think he doesn't examine things. Mm. And I think the miniseries kind of does that a little more. Like, for example, the miniseries goes a lot more into Dick Winters kind of dealing with the trauma of a lot of the fighting. But because in the 
book, he just interviews Dick Winters. Mm-hmm. He's telling the story to make him appear like Superman almost. And Dick Winters is basically Superman. Mm. But he doesn't question, he doesn't push a lot of people to gotcha. like really examine things. And um, there's definitely some characters that like are really complex. And it comes out a little bit in the book, but it comes out a lot in the series, especially um, Captain Spears, who took over command afterwards, has a lot of legacy behind him. And they kind of addressed it in the show that he might have killed a lot of people extrajudiciously and he might have been a he was an amazing soldier but he also might have done some dark stuff i i think there is a lot more complex stuff he could have dived into but it's hard to judge somebody about not doing the things in the book okay so how many stars do you give it dylan i give it five stars begrudgingly because i read the book before the series yeah and even like reading the book it's such like an amazing story and it does such a good job of encapsulating basically from like americans involvement from 1944 to 1945 this kind of shows what troop life was like i think this might tie back to when we were talking about our like wheelhouses and reading pathways i think andrew tell me if i'm wrong like i think you're more interested in style than dylan is like you prioritize style more than he does and so that's why maybe it would be a four versus a five yeah i think that's accurate i mean i definitely do prioritize style more than dylan yeah look at how good i look yeah (laughs) but it is the thing where like i can let a lot of it go but there are some like either a cringy moments where he kind of brushes away any questions about the bigger picture Mm -hmm. or he doesn't like have people question what they did because obviously one of the huge things that they had to kind of push through was believing in the company and their mission um and i think the series does a really good job because also the important part to notice about the series is that it's based on the book Mm -hmm. but the writers and producers stephen ambrose was one of them uh went back and interviewed people so you see the interviews. So you see the interviews in the show, and also they kind of use a lot of other material for the show as well. So they kind of blow it out a little bit more. Interesting. Andrew, I feel like we jumped on the end of your review. Was there anything that you didn't mention that you wanted to mention? There was one other small orc, which is just, there's some odd like storytelling choices in terms of what details he has. Like, <laughs> There's just a, a, a moment where they talk about, the, the, a chapter ends, and they're like pushing towards pushing towards ending the war in Europe. And then the next chapter sets off, and like they're like, well, Hitler's dead now, and all the stuff... And like, did nobody talk about like hearing that Hitler had died in this company? Like, yeah. I feel like that's an important part of the story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, so sometimes it's just paced weird. Like, they, they in no part of the book do they like you sort of skip ahead to the end of the war from when they were otherwise like seriously fighting. It, so there's just like some odd things, which I think must have just come out of Ambrose constructing what he was hearing from the interviews. Mm-hmm. But that's an example, I guess, of like where I felt like style was let down by trying to tell the story he had. Yeah, that's fair. But as I said, uh, four stars. I mean. There's definitely a certain amount of this where I'm giving stars for like the heroism of these of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I read it really fast. It was it was easy to read, and uh, if something like this sounds like what you'd be interested, I bet you would have a good time reading it. Awesome, easy company. Did it here, Dylan? Do you have any facts on Stephen Ambrose? Well, I have a very mat- lot of meticulously researched facts thanks to my hours and hours and hours and hours of interviewing him, mm-hmm. even though he's dead. So heads up. We're going to be dealing with some of the controversial stuff with Stephen Ambrose at the end. Okay. We're starting with the elves. The fact that Stephen Ambrose was born on January 10th, 1936 in Lovington, Illinois. He grew up mostly in Wisconsin. And his father, you're not going to believe this, was a physician and a World War II vet. What? (laughs) He really loved World War II veterans growing up. Fun fact, he served in the Navy ROTC and the Army ROTC. And he also was a member of Chai Sai Fraternity, another band of brothers. (laughs) I don't think that. Okay. Okay, fine. (laughs) He was also on the University of Wisconsin football team that he claims um, started his interest in military uh, strategy. Go Badgers. 
Actually, Ambrose wanted to be a doctor at first, uh, but he changed his major to history after hearing the first lecture, um, Representative Americans, in his sophomore year. And he be, he switched over his major, and he got a master's degree in from Louisiana State University, studying under T. Harry Williams. Heard of him? No. He's going to be like the Joyce Carol Oates of military historians for this one. Okay. Because he taught a lot of them. But he wrote that book, uh, Lincoln and His Generals, which... Here's sure. the thing. This is not my sure. genre. I'm just I'm just here listening. Lincoln and his generals is a big book. Okay, I believe you. Basically, Ambrose started just writing books about the Civil War. Although his second book about Henry Halleck, um, Lincoln's military chief of staff, got the attention of Dwight Eisenhower. Ooh. So he was commissioned to write the official biography of the five-star general Dwight Eisenhower <laughs> uh, that <laughs> resulted in basically seven books. But the big one is Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander. Interesting. Sounds completely unbiased. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? No, let's jump into controversy now. Okay. So a huge thing with Stephen Ambrose is that he might like embellishing a little bit. Gotcha. So he claimed that he sat down for hundreds of hours of interview with Dwight Eisenhower, and he literally said he was working with him a few days a week mm -hmm. in his office. The thing is, the Dwight Eisenhower Museum, in 2010, The Guardian did this um, expose where they said he talked to him for five hours, and it was one interview. Total? Total. Okay. And the Eisenhower Museum said, like, he might have gotten some research or notes or something, but, like, it's not like they were best buddies. Like, he just met him once to go over a book, and somehow he got seven books out of it. That's awkward. It's like when you think you're best friends with somebody, but you're not their best friend. <laughs> Yeah, so that, so stuff like that's going to be kind of popping up because a lot of this also came out after Stephen Ambrose's death when people were kind of examining his works. Okay, so nobody disputes any of the facts in the book. They just think maybe he over embellished his relationship. Yes. Okay. And especially in interviews because he's kind of the foremost Eisenhower historian. Okay. He married his first wife, Judith Dorster, in 1957. They had two children, uh, but Judith died in 1965, seven years later. Uh, but he married his second wife, uh, Maura Buckley, two years later, and they uh, stayed married until his death. And she was his researcher slash editor. He said she was indispensable. At the end of every day, I would want to hear how it came out. And I've died to hear what I wrote. I don't want to just read it. I want to read it aloud and get a reaction and response. So at the end of her day, she sits down with me. And if I've done 10 pages that day or 15, she listens, then jumps me. This sounds exhausting. But don't worry. She's indispensable. <laughs> she's always accusing me of triumphalism and making me cut back on that. So good job, Maura. <laughs> well, she spent the whole day like take, doing her job, taking care of the kids. And then he's like, wow, isn't war great? She's like, Stephen. Billy, 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 mm -hmm. Billy. Do you want to hear about Easy Company? <laughs> So he was a professor at the University of Kansas uh, from 1969 to 1971, and then he quit in protest over Richard Nixon speaking at the school. Uh, he was a huge anti-war protester of the Vietnam War. He hated, he hated Nixon so much that he actually wrote three biographies about him later on in his life. <laughs> That'll get him. <laughs> That's the way to get back I'm, at someone. I'm going to write three biographies about him. Not seven. And only hang out with him for a weekend. <laughs> And then from 1971 onwards, he was on the faculty of New Orleans, where this is apparently a very prestigious award. He won the Boyd Professor of History, an honor given only to faculty who attain national or international distinction for outstanding teaching, research, or creative achievement. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's a 
hard to get. In 1988, when he was、um, a teacher in NOLA, they had their reunion there, and he just happened to be one of the presenters at the ceremony. And he realized, like, you guys have a crazy story.、Has、oh, the it... Easy Company had their reunion? yeah, the、oh, Easy、okay. Company had the reunion, and he realized, like, hey, you guys have a crazy story. Have you ever sat down and told anybody about this? Do you think they had their reunion there because it was the Big Easy? <gasps> I didn't catch that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he interviewed them, and that became the process for the book. Although, fun thing, the book actually wasn't that big of a hit when it came out.、Huh. His big, huge hit is Undaunted Courage, the Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the opening of the Great American West. That sounds familiar. Yes,、uh, it was a Lewis and Clark book, and that's kind of what brought him fame. Gotcha. It brought him so much fame that he served as the consultant, Saving Private Ryan, and they used Band of Brothers as one of the texts to kind of show Day of the Life of Soldiers. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg read the book. Yada yada yada. Hey Tom, you. You ever thought about you know maybe doing some more stuff with us? <laughs> and then I just had some more facts about the end of his life when he became a historian rock star. Oh, I didn't realize like how famous he got. That he charged forty thousand dollars per lecture and then gave a hundred twenty lectures a year. Nice, nice. He also had in his contract that he had a Learjet fly him around everywhere. Nice, nice. And of course, his sons started the Stephen Ambrose tours. What's that? Go for four grand a pop, Bailey. Just saying, where you can follow either the Lewis and Clark journey, you can follow Easy Company's journey throughout France, and an all guided tour, not guided by Stephen Ambrose, is all done by audiobook. But still, this is the thing you want us to do on vacation. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My research was just looking at a brochure.、Uh, just from lectures, that's four point eight mil a year. Wow. Okay, and then he died in 2002, with his last book being The Wild Blue. It's basically The Wild Blue is following a bomber division、uh, during World War II. Okay, that book is important because it turned out that he might have plagiarized a chunk of it. Uh oh. From the book "Shot Down Over Germany in World War II" by Thomas Childers, a history professor,、uh, one of his peers from the University of Pennsylvania. The editor claims that he misquoted, like he, oh, I actually forgot to turn on italics on the document. <laughs> okay. Because he quote he quotes the book, but it's like. Literally, there's chapters that it's like.、Mm-hmm. So they went back to his research, and it's not. I don't want to throw the plagi- him under the plagiarism bus entirely, but they found like huge chunks of his books were miscredited. It sounds like he was living the rock star life and was like, "Who cares about citations, man?" The dark side of military history. Okay. That's the dark side of military <laughs> history. Yeah, yeah. It's not all lear jets and lectures, you know. Improperly cited quotes. It's not like the 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 murders of、Genocide. civilians. No, 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 no. I didn't know Doris Kearns Goodwin also got thrown under the bus as well. She has some plagiarism stuff that we'll get into when we read her. I don't think she's on my list. Sorry, Dylan. Oh no, Mora. Poor Mora、mm-hmm. uh, died in 2011, and his son Hugh Ambrose, who wrote The Pacific. Ah. Ah. Uh huh. I thought it was weird they both had the same last name. Uh huh. Yeah, but he died in、uh, from lung cancer in 2002 because he was an avid smoker. He claimed that smoking helped connect with a lot of his subjects, and he refused to give it up. Interesting, interesting justification. But that is the complicated life of Stephen Ambrose. Bros, bros, bros. Well, there you go. Thank you, Dylan. Excellent research.、Uh, so that's Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose. Four stars. Well, Bailey. Yes. I know you're worried about a big French book that you're、uh, reading for the next podcast, but what about this podcast? Any French involvement for you this time? Oui, oui, oui. Oh.、Uh, yes, I am reading another French book. Not really.、Uh, the book I read is called French Exit by Patrick Dewitt. <laughs> no. France. Lucas Hedges. <laughs> All right. So things you might know about French Exit.、Um, Patrick Dewitt is best known for his western dark 
comedy, um, The Sisters Brothers, uh, which came out, I don't know how many years ago. French Exit came out more recently, and he describes it in the beginning of the book as a tragedy of manners. So it's like very, very, very dark comedy um, following this family from a very rich background. Specifically, their names are Francis Price and her son, Malcolm Price, and their cat, Small Frank. Um, And basically, it starts with Francis learning that she has spent all their money and they are insolvent. And so with nothing else to do, they pawn all of their, you know, fancy items around their house and they stay at a friend's apartment in Paris and stuff happens. I'm not going to say anything more, but basically it just shows this group of it's kind of like imagine like Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development, but like darker and more of a pyromaniac. Like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> sort of like deciding like, you know, F it, I'm going to move to Paris. <laughs> it's basically that. And as Andrew mentioned, there was a movie that came out last year. Yeah, 2021 yeah. version uh, with the screenplay written by Patrick DeWitt. So it stays very close to the book, pretty much. Um, and it stars Michelle Pfeiffer as Francis and Lucas Hedges as Malcolm. All right. So that's basically the plot. I had a feeling that your your discussion of Band of Brothers was going to you know, be quite intense. So I just did sort of a, a brief review. Here's what I loved about the book. The writing is quirky and fun and very readable. Um, the characters are so fun to love and to hate at the same time. The dialogue is excellent. It's really cutting and odd. And at the same time as you are, you are at once laughing and then like not crying, but thinking, oh, this is very heavy. And then being like, uh, is there magic in this book? Is there supernatural stuff? It's all of that at once. And it's compulsively readable. So you go through it really quickly. And by the end, you're like, wow, that was lovely. So I'm going to read a quote from the book to give you a sense of this. And this is the kind of book where I was actually marking a lot of the dialogue as quotes to share, but I realized it didn't really make sense out of context. But the, but it's one of those ones where it's like, oh, that's a great line. Oh, that's a great line. I love that. All right. So this is a scene. Um, it's pretty much shown exactly in the movie if you end up seeing the movie. But um, Francis and Malcolm are sitting at a restaurant and they're annoyed that their right waiter's not paying attention to them um, and they want the bill. <clears throat> this is page 95. Frances had had enough. She pulled a bottle of perfume from her bag and began spritzing the bouquet of flowers in the center of the table. The waiter looked on from the sidewalk, wondering what she was playing at. Malcolm knew, and he studied his mother admiringly as she removed the lighter from her coat pocket. Click. She held the flame to the bouquet and it went up in a ball. The restaurant had filled up by this point and nearby customers stood away from their tables, cutlery clanking to the floor, the light of the fire dancing in their frightened eyes. The waiter rushed over to stand before the blaze in speechless disbelief. L'addition, s'il vous plaît. Francis told him. Malcolm sat beaming. The waiter ran off in search of a fire extinguisher. So it's just so fun because it's it's like it's a heightened world. You love these weird characters. You wish that you could be the one that's like, pay attention to me and bring me the check or I'm going to light stuff on fire. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just at the end of their rope. And so they're just willing to do all of the things that you wouldn't necessarily do. But there's some heaviness to that as well, because the sort of nihilistic attitude makes you wonder like what's going on in the interior of these characters. Um, I also really love the character of Small Frank the Cat. I was going to ask <laughs> if he was your favorite character. Dylan, who also has read the book, has told me that I can't say what I want to say about Small Frank because it would be a little bit of a spoiler. But let's just say <laughs> that there is more to the cat than may meet the eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's a dog. <laughs> 
Small Frank is very interesting. There's a part that is told from Small Frank's perspective, which I thought was interesting um, and a fun break from the rest of it. A little bit of a darkly comic relief to the black comic relief of the rest of it. Hey, cats can have on Wii too. There you go. Um, So I read this really quickly and maybe it's because I was used to the sort of dense prose of Les Mis, which is not bad. It's just different. (laughs) This one went very quickly. I think I read it in the course of like a day and a half. And so I'm giving it five stars. I really would recommend it, um, especially if things like France and satire and class comedies interest you. With that said, Dylan and I just watched the movie and I wish, I kind of wish I hadn't seen the movie because this is the one orc I have. Some of it makes sense on the page, but when you see it visually, it just feels overly twee and quirky, if that makes sense. I think it's not twee or quirky enough. I think it's one of those things where, and the Sisters Brothers adaptation kind of had this problem too, that like Patrick DeWitt has such a unique voice that a director or somebody, if you're going to adapt this, have like Wes Anderson or someone really heighten the world. Right. Because people, I mean, the dialogue is so great, but people don't really talk like that. So if you're going to show that visually, you have to really heighten the world, like you said. So that made me kind of question the book of like, well, how realistic is this? But if you're on board and you just buy into the weirdness of it, five stars. That's my review. What did you think of the book, Dylan? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. To an extent. I think that um, the characters are really interesting and the plot. So Sisters Brothers is also like a huge, huge favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. And I think I kept comparing it to that because they talk the same way and they talk about the same subjects. And he, in one of his interviews, he mentions that it's like, I found plot. And that's the thing that helped me out the most. With French Exit, it feels like you can kind of feel him pulling the strings a little bit of like, I need these two characters to talk now. Mm-hmm. And some of that works really well. And like, oh, I wanted to have these characters talk. But I think once they arrive in France, they kind of have to run around doing stuff. There's a lot less like, I don't know. It felt like the characters were more just kind of throwing ideas at each other for a chunk of the book, not all of it. Well, that's why I think he calls it the tragedy of manners, because it reminds me of those old like farces or, or, you know, the the old plays that you would watch where they're just throwing words at each other. Yeah. But I think with the farces, they at least have like an overarching, like, this is what we're working forward. I think that you kind of mentioned it, that a lot of it is interior. And it seems like Francis knows she wants something, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't really let the reader or anyone else in on that. Mm -hmm. So it's more like watching somebody. And the book isn't, if the book was long, that'd be a problem. Yeah. But since it's short, it's like, yeah, it's fine. But that being said, I now I kind of want to read some of his other books after reading this, uh, doing facts on him. But I think comparing it to his other book is the problem as well, where it's like, I know he can do a lot of really creative stuff and still have like a very like compelling book. Right. That makes sense. And I mean, to be fair, you did read this for the podcast and realize you had already read it. So that's, yeah. that's not a good sign. <laughs> for the longest time, I thought I put this down and just never picked it back up again. And then when I reread it for the podcast, like, oh, I actually did read it. The ending just so weird that I thought that was like a midpoint. Yeah. So how many stars did you give it? I give it three. Three? Yeah. <sighs> All right. Fight. Fight. Oh. Well, I mean, it depends how much you love cats. If you love cats, five stars. If you... I think if you hate cats, you give it five stars because of how they treat little Frank. Well, you've you've hinted at us. Tell us some facts about Patrick DeWitt. Well, Patrick DeWitt, he was born on March 6, 1976 in Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island. Oh. In Vancouver. He's Canadian. Oh. This comes back later. 
explains so much. Does it? (laughs) (laughs) He does have Canadian sensibilities. Uh, He's the second of three brothers, and he spent his childhood bouncing up and down the west coast of North America. His family sounds exhausting because he describes his father as, quote, one of the people who never really recovered from having read Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Oh, no. Oh, man. In high school, there was this guy I had a crush on that gave me that book and was like, this will change your life. Yeah, he sounds like he's that kid in high school because he dropped out of high school to become a novelist. Sounds about right. So he dropped out of high school to become a novelist. And of course, in order to become a novelist, he moved to L.A. Why? <laughs> I, I don't know. He moved to L.A. Uh, he worked a lot of weird jobs. It sounds like he works a lot of blue collar jobs, like construction and everything. He also worked as a bartender for two years. Um, and this is important. Because we hear a lot of times, like, you know, how writers got discovered. His discovery story was literally explained very verbatim, which was that one night uh, DeWitt was asked a customer he slightly knew to look at his finished manuscript. Oh, God. L.A. Nightmare. His manuscript was the notes he took from his nights working at bars on post-it notes, and he compiled it all together. Okay. Uh, the man, who was a screenwriter, liked it and passed it on to another acquaintance, a musician, who had once been in a band with another man who is now a literary agent. <laughs> And that book was Absolutions, which got him a little bit of heat spice that gave him enough time to work on his follow-up novel when he was living in Portland, Oregon, of the Sisters Brothers. Okay. And this is important because remember how he's Canadian. Yes. But he's lived in America most of his life. Okay. And he was also applying for American citizenship at the time. And the agent told him, don't, because you qualify for a lot of Canadian writer fellowships and awards. Ooh, uh uh-huh. So uh, Sisters Brothers came out. It's a smash hit in 2011. He was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, prepare for a lot of Canadian awards. The 2011 Scott Bank Giller Prize, the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, and the Governor General's Award for English Language Fiction. He was only one of two Canadian writers ever, alongside S.C. Ediguan. Heard of him? Nope. He's Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) To make all four awards lists. All right. So yeah, uh, Sisters Brothers came out as a huge hit. He followed this up with his book, under under major domo minor um which is like a, i guess a fairy tale story i honestly don't know what it's about i just have heard people say it a lot so i feel confident saying under major domo under minor. major domo minor yeah under major domo minor i'll say it a few more times but um <laughs> yeah and but that one did okay okay uh but then he followed it up with french exit yay yay which was also a pretty good hit but I think he's been kind of trying to chase the heat from um, Sisters Brothers. Mm-hmm. But while he was working on Sisters Brothers, I guess he went to some bar that a lot of screenwriters were working there. Because he also got a job uh, writing the script for Terry, a movie no one saw about John C. Riley raising a uh, obese kid. Okay. Um, and that, I guess, was based on a short story he was, like, tinkering around with. Uh, but John C. Riley was in it. John C. Riley found Sisters Brothers, produced it. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah. So now he is currently working on a new book, which hopefully has a very easily pronounceable name. He's developing a TV show off of one of his books, but he refuses to say which one. It's probably Absolutions. Could also be Sisters Brothers. He also is thinking about doing a traveling play that goes up and down the coast because, of course, he is. Well, that reminds me of a fact you told me about him in Oregon. Oh, and also really important, he began his acting career by, I don't know, Andrew, have you seen First Cow? No. Well, that was his debut as a background extra in First Cow as man holding a bird because he's (laughs) friends with the director. Nice. Hey, that's the dream. Um, He currently lives in uh, Portland with his son and his wife. I guess they're on really good terms because they're still married, but they're separated, but they're co-raising their kids. And he writes a lot about that. Uh, His wife, Leslie Napolis, um, and their son, Gustavo. Uh, But yeah, no, sounds like he's still 
up-and-coming working writer, hopefully doesn't have to work construction or at bars. All right, so that's French Exit by Patrick DeWitt. Five stars, because my review is the only one that matters. Okay. Um, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do. Yay! Y'all want to play a game? Yes. Yes. All right, so this game I set up to give Bailey an extreme advantage on one side and to give Dylan an extreme advantage on the other side. I bet I can guess what they are. Uh, So we'll see how this plays out. The name of the game this week is Exiting in France. Oh. A two-part game. Basically, I need a correct answer from you on one thing to get a ticket to the real show, as it were. So if you can name me an actor who appears in the Band of Brothers miniseries, you get to answer the real question, which is name someone who's buried in Père Lachaise in Paris. Okay. Oh, no. So And you'll take turns. So we'll go through. You'll name actors in the Band of Brothers miniseries, produced by HBO. Mm-hmm. For every correct answer you have that way, you get a guess at someone who's buried in Père Lachaise, the famous cemetery in Paris, and whoever ends up with the most points wins. So, Dylan, you get to go first. Yes. Name me somebody who appeared in the Band of Brothers miniseries. Bobby X. Axelrod, Damian Lewis. Damian Lewis did appear, correct. <laughs> That's your layup. In a small cameo. Do you have someone who lived in, who lives now forever in Père Lachaise? Uh, Oscar Wilde. That is correct. Oscar Wilde is buried in Père Lachaise. Thanks, Parish Tim. Oh, that's true. Uh, my turn. Yes, Bailey's turn. David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer, that is correct. He plays Herbert Sobel. Um, hmm, who do I want to go with? Jim Morrison. Yes, that's correct. Jim Morrison is buried in Père Lachaise. I thought Dylan might know that one, so I jumped on it. I did know that one. No. <laughs> no. All right, Dylan, your turn. You boys, you guys are doing so well. Uh, Donnie Wahlberg. Nice. <laughs> Donnie Wahlberg does appear in Band of Brothers, yes. As Lipton. Uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle? I don't think he's in there. Where would they put him? Like the Pantheon? There's two. Well, the Pantheon is where heroes of France go. Uh, Charles de Gaulle is not buried in um, in Lachaise. Is he buried in the Pantheon? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, James McAvoy. Correct. He has a one-episode appearance. That's right. Um, hmm. Baudelaire? Charles Baudelaire. No, is not buried in Bailey's shows. You guys both have one point, and I'm going to give you each two more cuts at this. Um, uh, Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender does appear in Band of Brothers. Very young. Um, uh, Godard? No. What? Godard only died like 10 years ago. Okay, so Baudelaire is in Montparnasse, which is a lovely uh, cemetery in Paris. nearby yeah. in Paris, um, and there are cats there. Um, Jean-Luc Godard is not... Uh, okay, my turn. Ron Livingston. Correct. Ron Livingston does appear in Band of Brothers. I think Victor Hugo might have been there, but then he was moved to the Pantheon, so I'm not saying Victor Hugo. I just want to put that out there. Who do I want to say? Is this your new holding to... Uh... <laughs> Guys, Jean-Luc Godard isn't dead. What? what? No, he died? Didn't he die? He died? Didn't he die? Okay, Wikipedia does not have him listed as dead. I thought he died in like 2005. Oh no, maybe that was his last movie. Jean-Luc Godard, born December 3rd, 1930, age 91. Oh no, he's alive. You made me look up if this <laughs> alive man was buried. <laughs> maybe he will be, Dylan. Bailey, what are you saying? I'm questioning everything. I'm going to say... Um... Eddie Piaf. Yes, Edith Piaf, uh, singer of La Vie en Rose, is buried there. She's one of the more famous ones. You guys each have one more chance here, but I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I got that one. I got full credit. You got that one. <laughs> All right, Dylan, last chance. Last chance for you, Dylan. Oh, Dylan, if you get this incorrect, you um, cannot win because Bailey has one point on you. She's leading two points okay. to one right now. Um, Tom Hardy. 
Yeah, it's true. Tom Hardy, also early career appearance in Brandon Brothers. Good job. Um, Alexander Dumas. Oh, that's a good guess, though. He's dead, right? <laughs> Dumas is also in the Pantheon now. Uh, I'm so sorry. I don't know if I can think of another. Oh, wait. Colin Hanks. Oh, no. Colin Hanks does appear in it. You already have won the game, but do you want to really bury him? Oh, that's a pun. I think you I think you do. I think you do want to bury him. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to mess this up because I really want to bury Dylan. Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Nope, Renoir is not buried there. I get half. At least <laughs> you do not get half, but you do, but you do win the game. Yay. Yay. Well, Andrew, tell us some of the people we didn't say. Well, okay, lots of people. For example, Sarah Bernhardt, Balzac, uh, uh-huh. Moliere uh, is there, Chopin, uh, paint- uh, Marcel Proust, Balzac, um, people like uh, the painter David's. Only, only his heart is there because he was banished and only his heart could return. His body had to stay away. Mm. When I said Baudelaire, I meant Moliere, so I get half. Isadora Duncan, Max Ernst. Oh, mon dieu. Well, thank you for playing. Bailey, congrats on winning. Thank you for the game, Andrew. That was fun, and I am a little ashamed of myself. Oh, and sorry. Yeah. Credit to Jillian Beth Durkee for helping me come up with that game. I was trying to think of something that was Paris-related, and she came up with Paris-related. Jillian's the best. She's great. Um. All right. Now's the time in the podcast where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Now, I've already been choosened because I've got this, you know, giant Les Miserables on my, on my back. But what about Andrew? Uh, for Andrew... Uh-oh, I'm scared. Actually, you know what? This room is pretty nice because I'm not hearing anything. Uh-huh. It's all just nice little room tone. A lot of number 90, White Noise by Don DeLillo. Ooh. Oh, okay. No, I'm into this. Uh, I know this is a book that Toby hates. Um, <laughs> That's it. But I am excited to read it. My friends really liked it in college. So maybe it's a book that, you know, people like in college and don't like now, but we'll see. We'll see. Sounds good. I was, I for some reason thought like, didn't we cover this? Or did Toby just talk about this book a lot of and how much he hates it? Yeah, no, it? Toby just roasted this book <laughs> that I have to read at some point for no reason. Hi, Toby. We miss you. So that means on our next episode in two weeks, I will be done with Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And Toby's reading Running with Scissors by Augustine Burroughs. One of them is significantly harder than the other, but just saying. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's hard to read people's memoirs because they can be a little personal. I agree. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you like what you heard today and you want to help us out, there's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, one, if you leave a five star rating, you can leave other stars, but five stars make us happier. And a review on your podcatcher of choice, in particular, this is true for Apple. That would be great. It helps uh, people find our our work who might otherwise not find it. And th- the big way you can really help us out is find a friend. Find Find someone who's a book lover, a podcast lover, or just, you know, force your family to listen to it on a car ride. <laughs> Word of mouth is our, our, our best way of finding new listeners, and it really helps us out. If you're part of a band of brothers or if you're buried in Père Lachaise, you might enjoy this podcast. Thanks to Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, to Toby for following his dreams, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. books.